as we read in Mark chapter 1, continuing in the Gospel of Mark and uh, thinking through all that Jesus said and did. And as we've said uh, several times now, uh, Mark kind of lacks on the details, um, but, but as we see Mark's writing style, as we see his heart, uh, he's not lacking on Jesus. He's pointing us to Jesus continually over and over again. And I pray that as we go through the Gospel of Mark, um, that it would just help us grow, help us to understand more of who uh, this Jesus is. I do want to say, uh, last week I certainly was sad not to be here, but I thank Matt for preaching in the morning, and I, th- I want to thank Bruce for running the business meeting. Um, I'm th- certainly thankful for the, the men and women that we have in this church who are just willing to serve and step in, and it certainly is a blessing. And then as uh, we had the business meeting last week, I hope um, that you are blown away, as we were blown away, by all the money that has come through this place and what we have been allowed to do. And we know it is all because of the faithfulness of God. Amen? Uh, we give by grace because God has given so graciously to us. And as, as we think of his blessings in our lives, we certainly want to be a blessing um, to those around us. I want to read uh, the text again, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll jump into uh, this section of Scripture together. Starting in verse number 14, it says this, Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, thence he saw James, and the the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. God, we ask this morning that you would use your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and kindness to us. And God, we pray again that you would do a great work in our midst today, that we would understand the text, we would understand its meaning back then, but God, we would also understand its application to us today. And God, I pray for those in the room who are believers that the life that's described here of following Jesus would be uh, what characterizes our lives as well. And God, if there's any here today who have never trusted in Christ, we pray that today they would repent and believe the gospel, that they would look to Jesus as the only source of salvation. We thank you again for your goodness and kindness towards us, God. May may we not take advantage of that, uh, but may we only use it day in and day out uh, to make your name known in a world uh, that needs to know your name. We thank you again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Authority is an interesting thing. Uh, People who often want it don't ever get it. Uh, People that have it often misuse it. People who have it and then like to lord it over others are quick to remind those that they're over about the position that they have. And then there are people who have it, but you would never know they have it because they never speak of it. They lead not with a sword, but they lead with a heart that desires to be an example. As we think about the authority of Jesus, we understand that he was the perfect combination of the best qualities in leadership, and he led in a way that showed others his humble servant's heart. This passage in Mark is the beginning of where Jesus begins to establish his authority on this earth. Now we know that Jesus has always had authority as God the creator, and that's evidenced all throughout the Bible. 
But it's interesting that the that he says in the Gospels that this authority that, he had, authority that he had on earth was given to him. So does this mean that there was a time in eternity past when Jesus did not qualify to have authority? Or does it mean he was not mature enough to handle this authority? These questions would certainly lead us down rabbit holes that are not worthy of our time. We know that Jesus has always had an eternal authority. But in the Gospels, this is the first time that he has had authority as the God-man. And as Jesus states in the Gospels, this authority is different and it's given to him by the Father. And so while he has always ruled, the truth is, until this point, he had never been in the position that he was in now as God in the flesh. Mark is going to do an excellent job over the next several chapters showing us just how authoritative Jesus was. His power was unrivaled. His ability was unmatched. His wisdom and strength and motives were always resting in his perfection. And this authority caused some of the onlookers of the day to be angry because they didn't like the things that Jesus claimed to do. This authority caused some to be confused because it made them question all that they had ever known. It caused some to push back because the things that Jesus said and did made them uncomfortable. But then it caused some to bow in humility because they recognized that there was indeed something different about this man. This authority that Jesus possessed and the way that he used it pointed to the fact that he truly was the Son of God. And isn't that how Mark describes Jesus to us? We saw in the early uh, verses of chapter 1 that that Jesus was described as the Son of God. This is a title that he bore uh, because it was true about him. He truly was God in the flesh who came to earth to be the sacrifice for sins. And as we look at him today, we see that he was a servant, but he was a servant with great authority. Have you ever been in a place where authority was abused? Maybe it was a job. Maybe in a family maybe in a church setting. In each of these settings, the abuse of authority always served the one who was wielding it. But in Christ, we see a completely different model, and it's one that we are to model our lives after. So if the idea of authority scares you, understand that your fears are probably justified in this world. But as we look to the person of Jesus... I pray that we would embrace his authority in our lives. For he always uses it for the good of those that he is serving and for the glory of the one who gave it to him. The big idea that we want to unpack today is this. As Jesus establishes his authority, he does so by preaching the gospel and calling people to follow him. The rule of Christ is seen in all his creation. But the question we must ask is this. Is it seen in us? So today I pray that we would give our full attention to Christ, that we would choose to live under his authority, because this truly is the only way to live the Jesus-only life. We've got two points this morning, and you guys know what that means. Typically, the fewer points I have, the longer I preach. And I didn't get to preach last week, so we're going to try to do the best we can with the time that we have. The first thing this morning is the message. The message. In verses 14 and 15, Again, Mark records for us these words. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. 
And so on our journey through Mark, we have seen so far that, that Mark kind of describes what the gospel, his gospel is going to be about. And then we go into this setting where Jesus is baptized and he's tempted. And then Mark takes us straight to this point where he begins to call his disciples. Now, if you're familiar with the rest of the gospel accounts, uh, we would understand quickly that there are other things that took place in between the temptation and the calling of the disciples. And as we've said, Mark is short on the details, but he's just pointing us to this person of Christ and the work that he came to do. And so as we jump into this section, we see that Jesus began preaching according to Mark. Now, this idea of Jesus preaching is going to be a significant thing as we make our way through the Gospels, and we're going to see part of that significance today there in our time together. As Jesus begins to preach, as his ministry had gotten started, as God the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, and as the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove, Jesus begins to preach, and he says these words, repent and believe the Gospel. Repent. And believe the gospel. We understand that this message was not simply one that Jesus preached. For we already saw John preaching a similar message. And if you go to the Old Testament. You would understand that this idea specifically of repentance. Was often preached by the prophets. This idea of repenting means to turn away from yourself. The things that you have done. The things that you think you can accomplish. It means to stop looking at yourself as a means of getting back to God and, and writing that relationship that was wrong. It means turning from your sin and changing direct, uh, directions completely. And so as Jesus comes on the scene after his baptism, after his temptation, he simply get, begins by preaching the gospel message of repentance. Now, we understand everybody else that preached this gospel message was always saying, you need to repent and look to somebody else. But Jesus' message was, you need to repent and look to me. Everybody else was saying, you need to look to the one who's going to come, the promised one, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the one who Isaiah wrote about. But as Jesus came on the scene, we understand that as he preached repentance, it was a repentance that would cause people to then look at him as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, Jesus the Christ. And so as Jesus begins preaching... We understand that he does this with great authority. Uh, many commentaries that I read throughout the last couple of weeks pointed to this idea that the authority of Jesus was established after the preaching took place. When he started to prove himself through his miracles, through the great works that he could do. But I can't help and read this passage and believe with all my heart that in the preaching, Jesus was establishing the authority that he had. He's saying, repent and believe the gospel. You need to look to me. And as we think about Jesus' message of repentance and belief, repentance and faith, and we think about the gospel message that we heard, isn't that the same message that drew us to the person of Christ? When we were pointed to this reality that through ourselves we would never be good enough to make it to God, but there was one who stood in our place, and as we just sang a few moments ago, Christ was the true and better of every picture that was given in the Old Testament. He was the true and better Adam. He was the true and better Moses. He was the true and better King of all kings. He was the true and better David. And if we look to him by faith, the Bible says that we will have salvation in his name and in his name alone. And so as Jesus begins to establish his authority, he does so through the preaching. And as Jesus begins to preach, 
He says words that ruffled feathers back then, and quite frankly, they still ruffle feathers today. Do you think people in Jesus' day liked the idea of repentance? No. Do you think the people of our day liked the idea of repentance? Why? Because the idea of repentance is pointing to this reality that there is something wrong in your life. That there's something within you that is not good enough to get you to the Father. That there's something in you that has caused a relationship to be broken. And so as Jesus began to preach the gospel message, he began by telling people that they had indeed done something wrong. That they were separated from God and they needed to turn around and go the other direction by looking to Jesus Christ. Sadly, in our day and age, people have left off this idea of repentance because it makes the gospel a little rough around the edges. Friends, it's okay for the gospel to be a little rough. And before you can really receive the good news, don't you have to understand the bad news? Before you can be healed from cancer, don't you actually first have to understand that you have cancer? Before you can receive forgiveness of sins, don't you first have to understand that you are indeed a sinner? And so while much of Christianity is just preaching this simple message that Jesus loves you, that reality is true. Jesus does love you, but he doesn't want you to stay where you are. And his love is not condoning the lifestyle that you're living without him. And his love is not overriding the sins that you have in your life that are unconfessed. And so this idea of repentance must precede faith. It must come before this idea of belief because it's what will turn our hearts to God. And so as Jesus began to preach the gospel message, he says, I need you to understand that before your wronged relationship, before your broken relationship can ever be restored, there must be repentance in your life. You must understand that you're on a way that leads to hell and damnation. You must understand that your sin, though it has caused negative effects in the life, your physical life, it also has caused great physical or or negative effects in your spiritual life as well. And truthfully, as David cries in his psalm of repentance, when he understood his sin with Bathsheba, what was it that he said? Against thee have I sinned. Against thee have I sinned. And he wasn't speaking to Uriah. And he wasn't speaking to the children of Israel that he was ruling over. He was crying out to God. Why? Because he understood that though his sin was grievous and caused negative effects in the world, it also caused a broken relationship with God the Father. So this idea of repentance must be preached. And this is the, the message that Jesus began preaching when he came onto the scene. And so Jesus preached repentance. He preached a turning from self and a turning to God. He preached this idea that direction had to change. And this doesn't mean that salvation is brought through changing your direction because we understand that as humans we can do that for a short period of time in our own power. But this idea of repentance is is understanding that God is doing a work in you to change you from who you were to who God desires you to be. And while some would say this message of repentance is harsh, I think, quite honestly, it's actually the opposite. The message of repentance is a message of kindness. Because if people don't understand the error of their ways, they'll never understand their need for a Savior. Now, does this mean that we preach the message of repentance simply towards the things that we don't like? No. If, if I preached a message of repentance simply towards the things that I don't like, then my preaching would be in vain, and my preaching would yield no eternal fruit. 
But when I preach the message of repentance that sin is actually against God, not just things that I don't like, that points people in a whole different direction. And they don't look simply at the messenger who's proclaiming the gospel truth, but they begin to look to the heavenly father who set this plan of salvation in motion long before the world ever was even in existence. And so this message of repentance must be preached. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But he didn't just preach repentance. He didn't just preach that they had to turn and go in another direction, but he preached repentance, and that repentance was coupled with this idea of believing the gospel. You see, if we can convince people in our world that they're living in error, some people might change for a short period of time. And if we preached that this idea of salvation or the gospel was simply this idea of repenting or turning away from the wrong that you've done, then what would we have? We'd have a a group of moralistic people who were trying to earn their way to God through their efforts. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't just say repent, but he says repent and then what? Believe the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is simply this, that Jesus Christ came to be the sacrifice for sins and all who will look to him by faith with repentance in their heart will be saved i wonder today how many of you can say that you have repented and believed the gospel friends that is good good news and as that is the message that jesus preached back in the early days of his life on earth we understand that this is still the message that we preach today i was listening to something this week and a guy was asked if he had one if he knew that his life was coming to an end and he had one last opportunity to preach, what message would he preach? And you know what he said? He said, I would just simply preach John 3.16. Why? Because John 3.16 is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the gospel says that you must repent, but you also at the same time must look to the one who came to die in your place. You must look to the one who loves you with an everlasting love. You must look to the one who conquered death and hell and the grave and the one who drank the full cup of God's wrath so that you and I could be forgiven. Church, don't you understand and aren't you rejoicing in your heart today that because of what Jesus has done, if you have faith in him, that you will never have to experience the wrath of God for your sins. Never. Why? Because Jesus experienced the totality of God's wrath in your place. And as he went to the cross and he took the beatings and the scourgings and he was mocked, and as they placed that crown of thorns on his head, and as they stabbed his side with the spear and that blood and water flowed down from the cross on that day, we understand that in a moment God turned his back on his son and Jesus cried those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment when Jesus faced all that he faced on the cross, we understand that he paid the penalty for all who would come to faith in his name. And that is indeed the gospel. And so you see, this idea of repentance and and, and belief is the gospel. But the gospel is only good news for those who come to understand the sinfulness of their ways. And that's why repentance and belief go hand in hand. 
You can't simply have belief and you can't simply have repentance, but they must be coupled together to show us that we have walked away from where God wanted us to be. We are sinners after our, our, our father, Adam. But in Christ, we can be restored because he is the second Adam who came to set all wrongs right. But we have to ask ourselves, why does Mark put it so plainly and simply that as Jesus began to preach, that he, he simply preached repentance and belief in the gospel? Why is Jesus' message so important? Why was it so pointed? But why was it so simple? Well, Jesus gives us the key and he says this, repent and believe the gospel. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now what does that mean? I like what Sinclair Ferguson has to say on this idea of the kingdom of God. He says, We tend to associate a kingdom with a geographical location over which a monarch reigns. But in Scripture, the kingdom of God describes an activity, God's reign over His people and His world. That rule was experienced wherever God was present. The Old Testament revelation had led people to believe that one day God would establish that reign personally. This was the good news which Isaiah brought. Jesus' words meant that the time had come. God's reign is beginning to be seen. But how? In Jesus himself. That was the meaning of the word from Psalm 2 spoken at his baptism. God was publicly installing his son as king in his kingdom. From now on, Jesus would speak and act publicly with authority and majesty. Ferguson does a great job of relaying to us what is meant by the kingdom being at hand. And while it did have implications in the present moment that Jesus was preaching the truth of the kingdom of God in that day, we understand that there was also many things about the kingdom that would come in the future. And so we live in this realm of what theologians have labeled as the already and not yet. If you are a child of God here today, then guess what? You are a part of the kingdom of God. But also understand this, that there are elements about the kingdom that we will not see or understand or even be able to fathom until we are present with Jesus Christ in eternity. And so when Jesus stated his message, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus is relaying this idea that I am the king and that I have all authority and that authority was given to me by the Father, and I will rule over my creation, but I will also rule in the future. And that's what we have to look forward to. And so Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And maybe we're asking today, well, if the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand and Jesus is, is preaching repentance and belief, is that how we, we enter into the kingdom? I want to go to Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 25, and see what Paul has to say about this uh, as, as he's being sent to Ephesus. Verse 17, the Bible says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church. And they were, when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came uh, into Asia, after what manner I have been with you all uh, at all seasons, serving the Lord with humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befall me by the lying and weight of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide. But none of these things move me, neither count I myself, uh, my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I, go, I know that all... I'm sorry. And, and now, behold, I know that uh, ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. And so what does Paul say in Acts chapter 17? How do we en- enter the kingdom that he was preaching? Through repentance and through faith. Repentance and faith. And as Jesus was preaching this message in Mark 1, we see that that's where Paul actually got the message from. That to be a part of the kingdom, that you must repent and you must believe in the gospel. That Jesus came to save sinners from themselves. And so as we round up point one this morning, I would simply ask you, have you believed the message of Jesus? See, there's many in churches, as I've stated, who have simply just believed this idea that Jesus loves them, and as long as they believe that Jesus is real, then everything is going to be okay. But what do we understand that the New Testament tells us? That even the demons believe that Jesus is real. But what's the difference? There's no repentance. They they understand that Jesus is the Son of God. They understand the work that Jesus did. They understand that that, that Jesus died in in a way and rose again in a way that had never been seen before. But there's no repentance in their life. And if all we simply do is preach the message that you just have to believe in Jesus and then everything is going to be okay, then we are turning people to a false gospel. Because that belief in Jesus must be coupled with the idea of repentance that I'm turning from myself and I'm looking to the only one who can save me. I was having a conversation recently with somebody about the gospel and I was asking them, why do you think that heaven is your home? Why do you, why do you think that you'll spend your eternity with God? And they said, well, I believe that Jesus died for me. And I'm like, well, that's a good start. And then they continued to say, and I've done all the things that I'm supposed to do. I've gone to church, I've I've tried to live the Ten Commandments, I've tried to be a good moral person. And you know, unfortunately, that person has completely misunderstood the gospel. Why? Because they're applying, yes, in one part, this idea that Jesus died for them, but then they're taking their good works and almost elevating them to the same level. Friend, what does the Bible say in the Old Testament? That all our righteousnesses is what? Filthy rags. That there's nothing that we can do to earn our our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to make our way to God. And I went through the gospel with this gentleman one more time. And at the end of it, I asked him the question again. Why do you believe that you'll be in heaven one day? Why do you believe that, that heaven is your home? And he said, because I believe what Jesus has done for me. But also because I've done good things. The sad reality is is that the Bible would say that person is not saved. Why? Because they're not believing in Christ alone. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to the hospital and uh, visit a lady who I had never met before. Her daughter had come to church, and uh, she texted me later that week and said that her mom had had surgery and uh, wasn't doing well, and she wanted to talk to somebody about 
the gospel. So I, those are the appointments I love. As much as I love going to see new babies in the hospital, I also really love going when somebody says, hey, they, they want to hear the gospel. Call me any time and I'll come night or day. So I went to the hospital and I talked to this lady and we, we talked for 10 or 15 minutes and I read some scripture to her and I could just tell she wasn't in, in the right frame of mind. And I shared the gospel with her and, and she was just kind of pushing it aside and I felt like she wasn't listening and I, I don't force people to, to say anything. That's not my job. And I, as I left that day, I could tell her daughter was disappointed because she, she knew as well as I did that she wasn't saved. And so I went home and, and I began praying. The daughter began praying and a couple days later I got a text and said, hey, my mom wants you to come back and explain the gospel. So I went back and went through the gospel with her, talked about the idea of sin and how we're separated from God and what it means to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And she said, I want to believe the gospel. And so she trusted Christ as her Savior that day, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. She turned from her sins, realizing at 91 years old that she had lived a life that was against God. But in that moment, by faith, she turned to God, believing that Jesus was the only way to gain entrance into the kingdom. And when she bowed her head and prayed, understand this, church, that she is as much of a child of God as any of us in this room are. Why? Because it's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel. It's repentance and belief in Jesus that makes the difference. And this is the message that Jesus began preaching with great authority as he established his ministry. And this is the message that we still preach today. Repentance and belief in Jesus. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. We must believe the message. The second thing that I want to see this morning is the implication. We've seen the message, Jesus came preaching repentance and faith because the kingdom of God was at hand, but now we see the implication in verses 16 through 20. The Bible says this, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when they had gone a little further, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servant and went after him. The second thing we see this morning is the implication. Some within Christian circles would like like it if the message of the gospel stopped at verse number 16, that it's just simply faith in Jesus Christ, and then you can do whatever you want after that. They like the idea of the benefits that the gospel brings and that there is in reality relatively, a relatively small cost to those who do the believing. Uh, we understand that God paid the payment for our sins through His Son, Jesus Christ, and He calls us to have faith in Him, which we understand is also a gift from God that we're even enabled to have faith to begin with. And so while some would like the gospel message to stop there, We understand that there are implications that go along with the gospel that we must pay attention to in our lives. And while faith and repentance is the gospel, we understand that there are things that come after that that prove what? That we have actually believed the gospel. That we have believed that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. 
And so the gospel calls us to repent and believe. But then it's, a, it's accompanied with an outward working of that internal gospel work. And this is seen in the activity in our lives when we truly receive it. It's similar to what Paul says. Work out your own salvation with what? With fear and trembling. He says, if you've believed the gospel, then your life should look drastically different. And while the gospel is the popular side of the message, I would submit that this is the unpopular side of the message. Why? Because we want to be a part of God's kingdom, but we don't necessarily want God to be a part of our kingdom. But you see, the reality is when we are a part of the kingdom of God, there's only one kingdom. It's no longer up to us to build our own kingdom or to be the king of our own desires or or to live under our own authority. But when we truly believe the message of the gospel that it took God dying to redeem us from our sins, then our desire should be to live under his authority in his kingdom until he calls us home. And so the implication is this. If you believe the message of Jesus, then you're called to become a follower of Jesus. If you believe the gospel, then you are called to follow Jesus each and every day of your life. Progressively, as we go from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see this idea of salvation is fleshed out. And then as we get into Paul's writings, we see the implications of the gospel fleshed out even more. And the New Testament, as well as parts of the Old Testament, do a great job of describing to us what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. And so Mark, even though he lacks on his details, he's very detailed in this idea that when Jesus came and preached the gospel message, that he called these people who believed to then follow him. And what did they do? They followed him. Now, that's no big deal, right? These guys were just fishing on the side of the sea. No big deal. They just got up and followed Jesus for a little while. Friends, understand this. When these men followed Jesus, it changed their lives completely. Why? Because they believed that the authority that Jesus had was an actual authority from the Father in heaven. They believed that though they were living probably good lives up until that point, there was something better for them. And this better was following Jesus when they believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so the first group that we see Jesus call as he's walking by the Sea of Galilee is Simon and Andrew, and they're casting a net into the sea for their fishers. If you want more, go to the other Gospels, and you'll get full detail of what actually happened on that day. But as Mark relays his details to us, he simply says this, that they were casting a net Why? Because they were fishers, right? Mark, we probably didn't need that detail. We probably could have figured that out on our own. But when Jesus comes to them, he says, come after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And verse 18 says, and straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. There's two words in that verse that I think are powerful. And they're the words straightway and forsook. Straightway implies this idea of an immediacy. That when they believed that Jesus was who he said he was, that they followed him in an instant. That there was no hesitation. That they didn't have to weigh the cost because they had already weighed the cost. This following was not their salvation, right? We believe that. This was discipleship to the one who would provide their salvation. They were following after Jesus and straightway they got up and they forsook their nets. Now their nets were their means of living. 
the means of paying the bills, the means of providing for their families. We know that Simon, who is Peter, that he was married, that he had a mother-in-law, that he had obligations that he had to attend to. And yet when Jesus called him to follow, what does it say that he did? He straightway forsook his nets. He immediately followed Jesus. Well, if we go a little further, in verse 19, we see that Jesus had gone a little further. And he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Now, as I said earlier, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus had already had interactions with these men. We also, many believe that James and John were in part related to Jesus by their mother. And so they, they had a knowledge of the life that Jesus lived. They had a knowledge of the message that John the Baptist had been preaching. And Jesus, no doubt, had interacted with them. They even, some of them, saw the baptism of Jesus. Because some of them were disciples of John the Baptist. And when Jesus came onto the scene and John proclaimed that this was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, they believed that that was indeed a truth. And when Jesus called them, they followed. Now for Andrew and and Simon, we understand that they, they just left their nets and they followed. But for James and John, we see that this wasn't just a business. This was a family business. And as they're mending their nets, as they're fixing their nets, we see that That when Jesus calls, they leave their father in the ship with a hired servant. I don't know about you as a dad. uh, I want to see my kids follow in my footsteps, right? I want to see my kids live the type of life that I live to some degree. But imagine being Zebedee in this moment when, when Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world came and said, hey, you boys, I want you to follow me. How much do you think it took Zebedee to say, okay, boys, you go follow Jesus? He heard the same message. And we could say, well, Zebedee wasn't following Jesus because he stayed in the boat. Guess what? Jesus didn't call Zebedee to follow him. Maybe Zebedee needed to stay in the boat. And as he calls James and John in this moment, we see that they leave their ship in the nets with the hired servants and they went after him. They followed him. Jesus came onto the scene and he interrupted everything about their lives. But understand this, for these four men and the rest of the disciples who had come after, this was the best interruption that had ever taken place. Why? Because they got to see and witness firsthand this idea that Jesus truly did have an authority that nobody else in this world had. Some of these men knew about authority. Well, how do you know? Because James and John had servants. They knew what it meant to rule over somebody else. But here in this moment, when they had believed that Jesus was who he said he was, and when they heard the call of Jesus on their lives, they dropped everything and followed him. Why? Because they understood that the authority of Jesus was greater. Jesus deserved to be followed. He called them to follow him, and they went. If you read the other Gospels, as I said, you'll find the other details and you'll actually find a different order. Does this mean that Mark's Gospel is unreliable? No, it just means that Mark's giving the story in a different way. It's not uh, an unreliability issue because all the details line up even if, if they're in a different way. And so Mark gives us the details that he gives us and honestly, they're not many, but I like that. Why? Because it's not the details that were important. It's the decision that was important. 
So often in, in church settings and church situations, we feel that our story has to look like everybody else's story. Friend, your story is your story. And God's writing your story in the way that he wants to write it. And guess what? When we follow him, the story will be used for his glory. I was having a conversation with Noah a couple of weeks ago, and he had something happen in his life that he was just discouraged about. And he never gets upset. You can just tell when something's weighing heavy on his heart. And we were driving down the road, and I asked him, I said, Noah, is everything okay? I'm just sad. And it was something that he was facing that was uncomfortable. And we thought the issue had been taken care of, but now there seems there's another issue. And, and he was just sad. And as we're driving down the road, and uh, God impressed upon my heart to relay to my son this idea that God's story for him is God's story for him that his story is probably not going to look like everybody else's story. That he's going to face different challenges and have to make different decisions. And he's going to be called to follow Jesus through different obstacles, through different trials. But guess what? God's story for him is God's perfect story for him. Why? Because God doesn't make mistakes. And we don't need our, the details of our lives to look like everybody else's details. All we need to do is follow Jesus through what he takes us to. And as the disciples were called in this moment, Simon and Andrew and James and John, we understand that they left everything behind and they began to follow. They began to devote themselves to the Savior of the world, the Lamb who was slain. They, they began to devote themselves to the one who was promised. And I guarantee at the end of their lives, they had no regrets. Why? Because in following Jesus... <laughs> They saw things that without him, they never would have seen. They witnessed this idea of the authority of Christ in ways that we can only read about. They witnessed the love and compassion of Jesus in such a personal and intimate way that it changed their lives. They followed until the end. Eleven of the disciples died gruesome, gruesome deaths. Well, John died at old age, so 10 died gruesome deaths. John died of old age, but wasn't he boiled in oil? He didn't have an easy life. You say, well, wasn't there 12? You're right, there was 12. But do you know why we know one wasn't saved? Because he didn't follow. What does John call Judas? The son of perdition. The son of perdition. He wasn't a believer. John, Judas forsook Jesus. He betrayed him, and he died apart from Christ. So the message was simply this, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, and the implication is this, that if you believe, then you will indeed follow. Mark portrays Jesus as a servant, and we think to ourselves, we're, call, we're called to follow a servant yeah, we're called to follow the suffering servant, Jesus, the Son of God. And we're called to follow Him each and every day of our lives. It may mean, <coughs> excuse me, that we cut 
family ties. It may mean that we lose out on business affairs. It may mean that we sever past relationships. It may mean that we leave uh, what is known for what is unknown. And that's exactly what the disciples did here. But they did it willingly and excitedly because they believed that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. You say, well, what do the other Gospels have to say about this account? Are you sure it's not just Mark saying these things? Well, in Matthew 4, the Bible says, And they straightway left their nets and followed him, and they immediately left the ship and their father father and followed him. So Matthew and Mark line up. In Luke 4.11, it says, And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. John is a much larger account, and he's very heavy on the details, but the encounter and the conclusion were the same. When Jesus called, they followed. They followed. And the immediacy and the fullness of their following shows that their hearts had been gripped by a truth that until this point they had never experienced or understood. I like how Mark writes later on in chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. The Bible says, And when he had called the people unto himself with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospel's the same shall save it. And so, brothers and sisters, if we have believed, then we must understand that following is not an optional add-on to our faith. But following is in actuality proving that our faith is genuine. So I would ask us today, are we following? Say it, Dan. I just feel that this is a little... Narrow-minded. Well, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? That narrow is the way, and few there be who find it. I, Dan, I just feel like you're sharing this from your own opinion, or, or because you want to have control over people. Trust me, I have trouble controlling myself. I don't need control over anybody else. I'm just simply stating the message that Jesus stated, that if you are a believer, then you will follow. But what does that mean? What what does that imply? How does that affect my life? I would argue that it affects every area of your life. That following Jesus is not something we do when it's comfortable or when it's convenient or when all our friends are doing it. Following Jesus is something that we do each and every day that we forsake everything else that we know to follow the one who has given us life. And isn't it true that the Bible tells us that at some point our following of Jesus will make it look like we have nothing but hatred for the rest of the people around us? He does. It doesn't mean that we hate other people. It just means that we love Jesus so fully that when that love is compared to the rest of our loves, it seems like the rest of our loves are indeed hatred. So Jesus called these disciples. He told them to follow him. And the Bible says they followed. I like what Jesus says, that I will make you to become fishers of men. You know what that implies? It's a process. 
Anybody else struggle following Jesus at times? That idea of I will make you to become fishers of men is the idea of sanctification. That the more we follow, the more we're going to want to follow. That the journey that God takes us on and through will shape us and change us to look like the one that we are indeed following, who is Jesus Christ. I love what Paul says. He says, follow me, but understand that I'm following Jesus. And as we follow Jesus together, we will be conformed into his image to be made to look like him. And so while the message of Jesus, as he spoke it with authority, it was repent and believe for the gospel or the kingdom is at hand. He then gives the implications of that belief that we will follow him all the days of our lives. And I guarantee that if we follow Jesus with the fervency that he calls us to follow him with, that at the end of our lives, we will have no regrets. No regrets. As I said, some will say that Jesus began to establish his authority in the passage that we'll look at next week. But the truth is, the authority of Jesus was being established as he called his first followers to come after him. They realized that there was something significant about Jesus and it caused them to devote their lives to him even when they didn't fully understand it. We see that especially Peter as he goes through such a transformation in the Gospels and then even still in the book of Acts. But what I love is towards the end of his life when you read First and Second Peter and what is Peter doing? He's doing the same thing for the believers that he was helping that Jesus did for him. Encouraging them along the way. Pointing them back to the truth to believe the gospel and be shaped by the person of Jesus Christ. And as Peter lived out his days, we understand that he did so under the authority of Jesus. And I would say, or I would ask, can the same be said about us? So the big idea, again, was this. As Jesus establishes his authority, he does so by preaching the gospel and calling people to follow him. The rule of Christ is seen in all of his creation. But the question that we must ask is this. Is it seen in us? Is the rule of Christ, is the authority of Christ seen in us? I have two questions as we close. The first one is this. Have you initially repented and believed the gospel? What do you mean by that? Has there ever been a time in your life where you have placed your faith and trust in Christ alone, turning away from your self-righteousness, turning away to the things that you can claim are good in you, recognizing that all your righteousness is filthy rags, and looking to Christ alone to save you. Friends, if you've never done that before, understand this. The Bible says that when you die, you'll be separated from God forever. So it's not a scare tactic to bring that up, right? It's just reality. I can't scare anybody into being saved. But I would ask you this. If the Spirit of God is drawing you to the Father, would you humbly bow and understand that salvation comes through faith alone and Christ alone? Would you believe that Jesus died so that you could be reconciled to to the Father? I wonder today, if you've never trusted Christ, will you turn to Him today? 
In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, and as we do, I'm going to make my way to the back. And if you'd like to know more about that, you can come to the back, and I'll show you through the Word of God what it means to be saved, what it means to trust Christ as your Savior. The second question is simply this, and it's for the believers in the room. Are you following? This is one of those questions where it's easy to look at ourselves through our own eyes and say, oh yeah, look at all the ways that I'm following. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to look at ourselves through the Word of God and ask that question, am I following? And you're following, and my following, in some degrees and in some level, it's going to look different. But there should be some of the same tenets in that following, that we're doing the same things, that, that we're serving, that we're loving, that we're giving, that we're devoted. As we look to the disciples today, the First four, anyways, we understand that they were all in. Oh, they had times of doubt. What happened when Jesus was crucified? What did Peter say? <laughs> I go fishing. And the disciples went with him. But what happened when Jesus met Peter on the shore? He was encouraged to follow again. So maybe in your life right now as a believer, there are areas that you're not following in. And you may say to yourself, Well, it's of no use. I'm just going to stop trying because I can't do it. And friend, you're 100% right. You can't do it. But God can do it through you. How does God do it through me? Well, he does it through you as you and I humble ourselves to his authority. So I would ask you today, are you following? Following for a believer carries with it this idea of continual, continual repentance This repentance is not for salvation, but it's for restoration. The truth is we're constantly sinning. At least I am. Anybody else? And we have to repent and come back to Him. And this continued repentance is proof that we are indeed actually following. Jesus came to them on that day. He looked them in the eyes. He said, follow me. I think that day lived on in their hearts and minds for a while. Do you think after Jesus had gone back to heaven that there were hard days that they had to go back to that message in their minds? Days where they wanted to give up and give in and try something different, maybe go back to fishing. And yet they remembered the words of the servant with authority in their hearts and in their minds saying these simple words follow me. God, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the the truth of the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do to get saved, but it's about what Jesus has done in our place. And God, I do pray this morning, if if there's any who have never trusted Christ, that they, as the Spirit works in their hearts, would humbly bow at the foot of the cross. And that they would understand that true salvation is found in Christ alone. And God, for those of us who are saved, which I believe is the majority of us in this room, I pray that that we would do an honest evaluation of our lives and that we would ask the question, are we really following? And help us to not look at our own lives with rose-colored glasses, making things look better than they really are, but help us to see the truth, God as we compare ourselves to your word. And God, as your word 
and your spirit point out areas in our lives that are not what they should be. I pray that we would humbly lay those things down and that even in those areas where we're tempted and prone to wander, God, that we would lay them down so that we could follow you more fully. That help our lives to be a witness to the truth of Jesus and what he has done in us. May you use our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.